Streaming from Abby Cat Recording Studio in Chicago. You are listening to Influence, a podcast where we explore what makes great music influential. Well, welcome to our podcast. This is Robert Dean. I'm here with... And I'm uh, Blake Sokoloff. Um, yeah, so uh, this is the first podcast that we're doing about bands that are big influencers on other bands, on other musicians, basically. Yeah, and just like kind of tracing like musical ideas like kind of throughout the decades, because you can... You can like trace almost anything kind of to to anywhere, like as as far as the musical world goes. And Almost, almost everything is pretty, pretty connected. Like we were. just wanted to kind of share some of our ideas with you, and I think we're starting today with the uh, the Birds, the uh, like folk rock band from the the mid '60s that kind of helped start like a, a ton of a ton of musical genres that are like pretty celebrated and and uh, influential today. They were massive in the uh, like folk rock movements the uh just like pop rock in general psychedelic rock and even even as far as like country and folk music they they have they've had huge influences over over swaths and swaths of of pop music and just have had dozens of incredible musicians throughout their ranks in the in the years and have been one of the definitely one of the most influential rock bands that kind of came out of that 60s boom yeah. Of uh, music, absolutely. I mean, I, I think some people consider them the the sort of the founders of that type of folk rock. Oh, definitely. Uh, as mean, well as a psychedelic uh, movement. So, I definitely. mean, they're they're responsible for an awful lot. And I think everybody who's probably listening to this podcast knows that uh, you know Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, for example. Oh yeah, attribute a lot to the Birds, definitely, and, and the Eagles, and even like newer indie rock like bands like always and even like in the 90s like mazzy star and bands like the brian jonestown massacre indebted a lot of their sound to like the birds and and just other kind of musicians from that kind of california scene uh but the birds are definitely one of the major ones up there with like the beach boys and probably the mamas and papas as like some of the more important music that's come out of or came out of California, especially the Los Angeles area in like the 1960s. Yeah, I mean they were they were quintessential American band, right? And Definitely. I mean they 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 started in like the early early 60s when like David Crosby and Roger McGuinn were, who are two of the founding members of the Birds were like kind of folkies in just playing playing acoustic guitar and singing songs in like coffee houses around LA and just like little social clubs. And they like ran in some similar circles, so they like got to know each other eventually. Knew a few other people, like they knew Chris Hillman because he was kind of a, a folky as well. And um, were like they actually David Crosby and um, Roger McGuinn first like really bonded over like their love of like pop music and the Beatles. Like David Crosby talks about um, going into a, like coffee shop and seeing Roger McGuinn like play a like solo acoustic guitar version of i want to hold your hand that like most people in the the coffee shop were not into at all because mm -hmm. they thought he was just 
playing this like teeny bopper pop music and trying to turn it into a, a folk rock thing. But, but David Crosby kind of saw that and was like, Hey, no, he's like, just like making these, he's like making music that, that is fun for everyone to listen to and like transferring it to like this more sophisticated style with, with a lot more musical complexity than might, than maybe even the original arrangements had had to them. So that definitely led to David Crosby and Roger McGuinn, like just like talking and bonding over their love of like both sophisticated folk music and stuff like Bob Dylan's early music and Joni Mitchell while also being very, very into like the, the pop music of the time with like the Beach Boys and the Beatles obviously were huge influences. And that influence definitely went somewhat back and forth. Um, like, like how the, uh, the, the Beatles like first brought out that they're like 12 string electric guitars in like 63 or 64, just to like kind of brighten their guitar sound a little bit. And that, definitely like struck a chord with Roger McGuinn, the, the guitar player for the birds. And he went out and bought a 12 string and kind of found his own style with it. And he bought the, uh, one of the Rickenbacker 12 strings, which, which have kind of become like the standard of 12 string in like the music industry. And like, if you see any band playing a 12 string guitar these days, they're most likely playing it out of one of those Rickenbackers, which probably would not have come to style had Roger McGuinn not picked one up from uh, some music shop in LA one day. Cool. Yeah. And so the birds, let's talk a little bit about how the birds came to be. I mean, how, how did the birds get to be the birds and how did they get the rest of their personnel? Yeah. Yeah. So I believe from, from the stories that I've heard and kind of read, they were kind of David Crosby and Roger McGuinn were kind of doing these like kind of duo folk sh- folk sets in like coffee houses yeah, playing and, around and they were kind of trying to do that like turn like these pop pop hits and beach boy songs and beatles songs into like more folk based like sophisticated arrangements with really nice vocal harmonies and they're like the 12 string playing that would become iconic and um they were kind of scouted by a uh, record executive who kind of realized that, hey, these guys are kind of, maybe they're kind of onto something, like maybe making like some more sophisticated, sophisticated songs, but like kind of giving them that Beatles backbeat and making them, making it something that everyone can kind of bop their head to driving down, you know, Sunset Boulevard or whatever. And so he kind of, that, that record executive went to the, went to the guys and were like, hey, do you guys like want to form a band? I kind of think it was Columbia Records, one of the majors at the time. Um, and he kind of went to them and was like, hey, I like your sound. Like, do you, would you want to be, would you want to be a band? And um, like, would you want to form a band around your, you guys and your vocals and songwriting? So they were, they were certainly interested and they kind of realized like, hey, we need to get, get a couple more people. We need a drummer. We need a bass player. We need some more. We need a songwriter. We need, they, cause Roger McGuinn at that point was more of a like folk, folky who was, who would, occasionally write his own songs but would mo- for the most part uh kind of interpret folk songs that had already been like standards that had been around for decades or like interpreting new pop songs into kind of more folk folk rock arrangements so they they found their friend they went to their friend Gene Clark who was kind of a songwriter they both knew and asked him if he wanted to be in a band 
And uh, he was originally pretty stoked about being in the band as like a, as a uh, rhythm guitar player slash slash co-lead vocalist. So they kind of started forming a band around the three of them, like Gene Clark, David Crosby and uh, Roger McGuinn. And um, so then they needed they figured out they needed a rhythm section and they contacted their other folky friend, Chris Hillman, who they knew from like kind of playing around. And he wasn't a uh, bass player by trade, but I believe he kind of like they asked him just like as a friend, like, hey, uh, we already have a few guitar players for our band. Like, do you want to do you want to play bass? And Chris Hillman was like, hey, yeah, I, I like the songs you guys are doing. I'll give bass a try. So he picked up a bass and and uh, joined the band. We're like, all right, they were and they were having. So they had started playing some gigs and they were having having trouble finding a drummer who like fit their uh, fit their aesthetic and fit what they were trying to do. And the record executive kind of wanted the record executives like were kind of taking notice of some of the success of bands like the monkeys and other other acts like that that were sort of sort of manufactured to certain degrees like obviously there were talented musicians in the in the monkeys and stuff like that but for the most part they were actors who were hired because they could sing and play pretty decently and so they started having some auditions for a uh, drummer for the birds and they hired this guy Mike Clark who actually I believe tried out to be on the monkeys and didn't get didn't get the gig, but he was a like a pretty handsome looking guy, and they needed a drummer. And he hadn't really played drums, but he had some. De- I guess he could keep decent time and had good rhythm. So they were just like, "Hey, you're you're gonna be the drummer." And then they, um, I guess they kind of had a uh, warehouse that they turned into like the birds' practice space because the the label was kind of fronting some money to get the band started. So for, I guess it was something like for like four or five months, the birds would practice at that warehouse for some, something between like five to eight hours a day and just drill their songs. Like that's how Michael Clark learned to play drums by just like playing drums for eight hours a day. And he kind of had to, had to learn. It was kind of amazing that the uh, rhythm section, obviously bass player, drummer of the birds, uh, both both of those two people uh, didn't know their instruments when they started in the band. Yeah. I mean, that's that's amazing. Which which I always think of the rhythm section as the backbone of a band. Oh, definitely, yeah. And it's gotta be. It, it maybe it doesn't gotta be, but it really should be. And definitely. Uh, so that's a really interesting aspect of the birds and that whole mon- monkey esque uh, way that they were sort of put together. Then I saw her face. Now I'm a believer. definitely and i mean they they even uh because they were always kind of in that uh folk rock more a little bit more serious uh mindset they always kind of resented the fact or later on in their careers resented the fact that some people kind of viewed them as being manufactured when they were to some capacity and that definitely also inspired or kind of helped inspire them writing their uh, hit single, So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star, which is a kind of satirical take on the rock industry and how all you needed to do in the 60s to get huge was get your song uh, noticed by some executives and they give you money and you get to the top of the charts. Uh, But it is a little, it is a little maybe... um, two-faced of them to look down on the monkeys for that when they themselves were 
manufactured to a certain degree. Totally, but, um, totally agree. And look, they built most of their own band. Oh yeah, and then so. they were they were writing a lot of their own music, which yeah. is something you can't necessarily say for a lot of those manufactured bands. So they definitely have a lot of artistic credibility to themselves. But it is it is kind of funny to kind of see where they were at in their own heads about like just their uh their the beginnings of their band. So at the beginning of our our show, we played the snippet of their kind of their biggest hit, Mr. Tambourine Man, which is kind of a well-known Bob Dylan cover. And was a massive hit for the birds, charted number one in the U.S. and in the top ten across various countries in the world. And was one of only two number one hits across the birds' career, the second of which was uh, Turn, 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 the lead single off of their second LP. But right before they were about to release that song they invited bob dylan down to their practice studio to see their to kind of like get his take on the arrangement uh and um because also because roger mcguinn kind of knew dylan a little bit at least a little bit from their like folk day is like playing in coffee houses sometimes together but this as the story goes is when bob dylan kind of went down to the uh went down to the practice space and they were kind of gearing up and just like getting to know him and stuff i guess he was like super standoffish wouldn't really talk wouldn't really he wasn't really talking kind of intimidated them they uh got got to play in and um after they played the arrangement for bob like two or three times he was he was ecstatic he was like wow it's the first time i've heard on my song and like i can imagine i can imagine people dancing to it mm. and so that they definitely took that as a really good sign of like hey maybe we're kind of onto it with like with like kind of this format of writing these these songs that are or not necessarily writing these songs but interpreting interpreting older folk songs and other kind of more sophisticated lyrics and putting these uh Beatles-esque kind of pop tunes behind them uh arrangement wise and it definitely did well for them they like sold hundreds and hundreds of records and yeah. shot right right up the charts and so speaking of uh, Mr. Tambourine Man, yeah, um, clearly they did a great job on that song. Oh, yeah, it's amazing uh, what they transformed that that song into. But I, I think the birds get a bit of credit for uh, uh, Dylan uh, going electric. Oh, definitely. Yeah, that was definitely like hearing when with Dylan hearing that like arrangement of like, hey, wow, like these guys actually kind of made made my song like something you could bob your head to and like so that that was definitely an influence in in uh and like the in a year or two after that song came out when dylan decided to kind of go hey i'm gonna go like have a rock band back me instead of just like a couple acoustic guitars and harmonicas you got a lot i knew i say you are my friend Just want to 
he was definitely inspired by like what the birds had done to his arrangements because the birds had by by the mid 60s had covered a number of his songs every every cover they did Dylan was a huge fan of and um he developed like pretty pretty healthy relationships and friendships with a number of the uh with a number of the members of the birds and even like collaborated with Roger McGuinn on a few a uh, few times like there was that movie that I think it like was released in 1969 or 1970 the ballad of the easy rider oh yeah um but or I think the movie is just called Easy Rider, easy rider but yeah. um, the title track of that of that movie is a song that Bob Dylan started and then got like halfway through um, and then went to the movie producers and was like, hey, I want Robert Roger McGuinn to finish this song. He'll he'll know what to do. Mm. And so Roger McGuinn just finished that song and recorded his version for the, the movie. The river flows, it flows to the sea Wherever that river goes, that's where I want to be Flow, river flow, let your waters wash down Take me from this road So they've, they've had a pretty healthy relationship since, the, since those early days of the birds kind of covering a lot of Dylan's songs and being a a huge influence on him kind of going electric. And when the birds kind of released that, that, that hit, uh, Mr. Tambourine, man, that definitely like sent some waves around the music industry of just like people, a lot of musicians be kind of being like, Hey, how'd they, what's this about? Like, this is a pretty cool, a pretty cool thing. These guys have like gotten into. And even, and even like, like the, the, the guys and the birds always talk about how they, the Beatles influenced them, but like the birds music definitely even, went yeah. back and was a huge influence on on the Beatles. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about uh, an American band in the 60s, you know, influencing the Beatles. But I think that there was a little bit of a, a back and forth between George Harrison and Roger McGuinn. Definitely, uh, yeah. And to your point earlier around that 12-string uh, guitar. And, Definitely. Uh, them, you know, getting together and, and making some music happen and uh, hanging out together. Definitely, yeah. There was a lot of there was definitely some of that in the '60s as well. Like there's that kind of infamous uh, infamous tale of um, Peter Fonda and the Birds and the Beatles all having a, a massive acid trip in a uh, California mansion. Like in I think 1966, it was definitely it was during the Beatles' last tour of America. So it was like off off the Revolver tour. Which is like right around the time the Beatles had first started kind of experimenting with psychedelic drugs, and the the year, a couple of years prior, Dylan had introduced them all to marijuana, and the Beatles became pretty instant major stoners. And um, <laughs> by by the nineteen sixty six, they were winding down touring, and kind of like Sergeant Pepper was on the horizon for them, so they were kind of they were kind of gearing, getting into their most like fruitful. Um, creative times as a band and like their psychedelic use definitely played a pretty major part and they're just like open mindfulness about about their uh about their musical exploration and then in that 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 time uh when uh the Beatles and the Birds and Peter Fonda all tripped together was a pretty influential time in in and of itself because it inspired like it inspired a lot of 
music and like the Beatles, like George Harrison and Roger McGuinn uh, tell stories about how they both ended up in the bathtub, like tripping, tripping, like pretty hard, like uh, just noodling on their 12 string guitars, like unplugged, like no amps, just like in the bathtub, the two of them just like jamming out like while they were uh, having their trip. It's funny. And, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. And that that experience was also, like, one of the experiences that led John Lennon to, like, write that song, She Said, She Said, where he talks about, I know what it's like to be dead, because Peter Fonda was tr- freaking out on his acid trip and talking about how he died as a kid when he was born, so he knew what it was like to be dead. And the birds and the beetles were, like, freaking out because they were like hey man you're putting a damper on our trip talking about like death and stuff like come on man stop freaking out So yeah, the the whole Peter Fonda being there just seems very random. Oh I, yeah, definitely is pretty. I mean, I guess it was just like he was in L.A. because he was an actor, and yeah. like that all that that excursion happened in some mansion in L.A. I think while the Beatles were uh were uh on like a couple off days for their tour, but yeah, and had you know just say hey, let's have some people over, and it yeah. happened to have Peter Fonda over too. Yeah, so. interesting stuff. So um just. Maybe a couple other bands, you know, just kind of, maybe this is random, I don't know, but uh, just thinking about Tom Petty and, oh, yeah. you know, out of Florida, Gainesville, Florida, and uh, it's putting a band together and, uh, you know, the birds being, you know, Tom was pretty blatant about it. I mean, um, that he, he was definitely influenced by, oh, yeah, by definitely, the birds yeah. and their sound, you know. Definitely, yeah. And like, because uh, kind of around that time where they were, they were kind of, expanding their minds was probably around the in like the mid 1960s was like probably right around the time the Tom was starting his first bands in florida and Good like point. getting really influenced by like the more exploration the more exploratory music that the birds started putting out when they started putting out like their kind of mid 60s albums after after gene clark left the band due to like kind of just some personal issues and him not really liking the like rock band lifestyle of constant tours and stuff like that. He he kind of dropped out of the of the group for a while, but that kind of led the other guys, Chris Hillman and David Crosby, to kind of step up. And David Crosby is a, bit, a little bit of a wild card and was a little bit of a wild card in the '60s and was definitely a big proponent in like kind of pushing that psychedelic attitude uh, that the Birds were pretty pretty at the forefront of it, like was definitely a major influence in like their albums, fifth dimension and younger than yesterday. And, um, like you can, you can definitely hear it. And like, I'll play the, 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 probably one of their bigger songs, eight miles high just starts with like this very Indian sitar influenced, like guitar riff. Signs in the 
Well, I can tell you one thing that um, that song sounds absolutely fantastic over these monitors. We're we're sitting here in Abbey Cat Definitely. Studios in Chicago, and uh, we're in the control room. Blake's got these unbelievable monitors in here, and he just cranked that up. It's just that's an amazing song. Definitely, and just the uh, the way they can kind of go back and forth between these like very very sweet pop choruses of just the eight miles high refrain, and then go right into these verses that feel like your just mind is melting and just you don't even know where the guitar is going to land next is it adds some like definitely pretty impeccable songwriting and like not not everyone can do can do a mix between like just something that sounds so sweet and something right next to something that sounds so out of this world and the the way that they could do that in 1966 with like 16 tracks is is pretty mind-blowing and like yeah was definitely a huge influence on like a lot of those like early seventies rockers who trying to take things to the next level, like Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, and even thing, even people like Elvis Costello and some of the more British like post punk guys were definitely influenced by like the Birds and their a lot of their guitar playing. So definitely REM too. Oh yeah, definitely REM is definitely a huge a huge uh, influency of the Birds yeah, and definitely just word. like their way the way that they like. The way that they played with like kind of almost country music yeah. and country instrumentation with like the mandolin and like um losing my religion, mm-hmm. just like that's definitely very birds influenced. But like keeping that country and folk influence in a in a pop sphere, uh like with uh with the pretty chorus that you can always sing along to is something that like is definitely something that kinda goes back to these guys and a lot of the other kind of music of that California scene. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it, well, it definitely worked for them and it obviously worked for Tom Petty mm-hmm. and the Heartbreakers. So definitely uh, it's nice to think that, you know, maybe they would have been great bands regardless, but having that influence from the birds, you know, definitely went a long way to making them what, what oh, they definitely. ended up being, I mean, which was amazing. Oh yeah. And I mean, Tom Petty is also one of those bands that's got that, like just a lot of their, a lot of their biggest hits, like even American girl with that, like with that, like, 12 string guitar is pretty like that's like that's just a bird's that's just a bird song essentially yeah right? Just that twelve string chugging through that intro is straight out of straight out something straight out of like Mr. Tambourine Man. 
Yeah, and having uh, Mike Campbell uh, cranking away on that, it does a, obviously one of the best guitar players ever. So, Definitely. Yeah. And so this plays kind of an interesting role in the Bird story at large, but in uh, 1989 for his first solo album, Full Moon Fever, Tom Petty actually recorded a cover of the Gene Clark song on the Bird's first solo album, uh, Gene Clark written song, excuse me, on the Bird's first solo album, I Feel a Whole Lot Better. And so that's obviously one of Tom's more uh, direct admittance of his, like, Wild Birds obsession. Yeah, kind and, of a uh, tribute almost. Oh, it's definitely a massive tribute, but it plays kind of a uh, melancholic uh, role in the Birds story because in uh, 1989 when this album came out, Gene Clark, the uh, former frontman and primary songwriter for the band, was dealing with some pretty heavy substance abuse issues like a lot of cocaine and alcohol abuse and just like generally his his career had kind of stalled in the 80s he he kind of sank into obscurity not too many people were paying attention to what he was what he was kind of going after career wise musically when this cover version came out it was at the like kind of the height of tom petty's popularity so this album sold immensely well and was number one in the U.S. for probably a couple months. And um, that was the first time in over a decade that Gene Clark had had, like, a lot of money come his way. He's the sole songwriter on this song, so he received, like, a vast majority of the royalties that were generated from this this song, which I think was released as actually the last single of this album. Mm. So this song was getting a fair amount of airplay, and... um, it's one of the one of the contributions to his death is actually the um, the excess money that he got from this cover kind of fueled more um, substance abuse issues. And I think was one of the reasons that like by I believe it was like- 1991 when he unfortunately passed away from his substance abuse issues, actually only a few months after the birds had been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which actually did see the five original birds performed together for the first time in years and what was unfortunately the last time. That was kind of an unfortunate end to uh, one of the chief birds and one of the chief people who like kind of started their legacy as their as their chief songwriter before he kind of left for his personal reasons. But it's a uh, it is still another uh, nonetheless a very good a great tribute by by Tom to his like with the legacy of one of his favorite bands. And Tom Petty was also like an, uh, a great friend of Roger McGuinn's. And they actually co-wrote a song called uh, King of the Hill from one of Roger McGuinn's early 90s solo albums called Back in Rio. Oh, great. Your prize 
but yeah, Tom Tom is definitely a, one of the major proponents of the of the birds and their legacy. And uh, I mean, him as well as like other bands like the Eagles were also huge on the the birds and their like kind of the birds later sixties foray into kind of country rock yeah. when after. Because after their psychedelic period, Roger McGuinn kind of got a little fed up with David Crosby yeah, and his antics. Yeah. We should talk about that and why David Crosby left or how he left the band. Definitely, yeah. Because then they did move into that more country rock period. Yeah. yeah. So the last album they did with David Crosby was their third kind of album in their psychedelic period called The Notorious Bird Brothers. And... Um, Prior to that album, the Birds had played a number of like music festivals around around the country and around the world, um, just because that was kind of the mid to late sixties were kind of the first time that music festivals became a major thing. And I guess at a few of these festivals, I think it was specifically Monterey Pop in uh, nineteen sixty seven. Um, on stage during the Birds set, David Crosby went on a rant about the like joys and benefits of psychedelics and while the other members of the birds were kind of privately indulging in like psychedelics for their music roger mcguinn wasn't super into the fact that david crosby was being very public about his drug use and the band's drug use and and their uh creative endeavors like roger mcguinn to this day still um still downplays the role that drugs like played in their and like the writing of like eight miles high mm-hmm. uh like he he for for decades insisted that it wasn't a drug song until david crosby kind of came out and admitted that like they were stoned while they were writing it <laughs> so yeah i don't know i you can you can say what you want to say but it's definitely they were definitely pretty inspired by the the drug movements and just like the the change in mindsets in the the mid-60s and David Crosby was very, very into the the sixties lifestyle and even some of the like more fringe kind of thoughts of the hippie movement, like the free love movement was also a thing that David Crosby was very, very interested in and he was like kind of openly in like multiple relationships throughout the sixties and there was a point where he was in like a really like a poly polygamist relationship with like a couple like I would think it was like two to three women and one other man. Yeah. Um, so he was like, he was kind of writing these very free spirited songs and having a lot of these free spirited ideas, which kind of clashed with like the public persona that Roger McGuinn kind of wanted to, wanted to put forward about his band. And so there was a session during notorious bird brothers where David Crosby brought in this song triad which is kind of very, uh, very blatantly about having a threesome with ah. with two people or being in love with two people at the same time. And um, that was kind of the final straw that broke the camel's back. Like Dave Roger McGuinn was like, hey, we don't want this on our album. And David Crosby was kind of getting pissed because they were like four or five albums in at that point and we're still like they were still kind of including a lot of these like covers on their albums that roger that david crosby thought were kind of a waste of album space because he was just like we can write songs so why are we still putting all these covers on our on our album because the birds wanted to put this uh carol king uh song a cover of this carol king song on their the notorious bird brothers which they ended up doing 
And so those two things, like David Crosby's insistence on not doing any covers and also his insistence on when he was writing songs, they were going to be about kind of taboo subjects, led Roger McGuinn to kind of dismiss him from the birds, um, which left them down one more songwriter. So then it was kind of just Chris Hillman and Roger McGuinn's occasional songwriting uh, credits that were kind of carrying the band, which led them kind of back into doing a lot more of these like folk arrangements or just arrangements of older songs in addition to having a few originals on their albums. And then they also started cycling through band members like the that guitarist Graham Parsons, who became like a pretty successful guitarist. And I yeah. believe the Flying Burrito Brothers yeah. uh, was a guitarist in the Birds for a minute. Mm. And he actually left with Chris Hillman to form the Flying Burrito Brothers after a couple of years. Right. Um, but there were a number of other famous like country musicians who kind of floated through the Birds ranks that, in those years from 1967 to kind of 1970. Um, but those country albums were definitely huge and kind of stayed though. The country, the kind of country albums kind of uh, also saw a return to some of the like birds popularity that had kind of dimmed in the like psychedelic years because they were getting a little more out there and experimental with their music. So it didn't sell as well when they, when they kind of went back to the country the country charts that or the country music that definitely kind of expanded their popularity again for a couple more years. Mm -hmm. And so they, they kind of saw, they kind of saw the sixties before they really started like peering out. But um, those country albums were definitely very, very big on kind of the country rock and soft rock that became really, really huge in the seventies and, even into the 80s, like the bands like the Eagles and even Leonard Skinner and some of the Southern rock like that were probably pretty influenced by like the yeah. the country music that the birds started putting out by the later end of the 60s. And then a lot of other like California artists at that time kind of straying a little bit more country with like artists like Jackson Brown becoming right. really, really popular. And he definitely owed a lot of his influence to like a lot of that soft rock kind of country feel that the birds were putting in their like later albums in the sixties before they kind of would go, go to their separate ways. Clouds so swift, rain won't lift, gate won't close, railings froze, get your mind. Then throughout the 80s and 90s, there were a lot of like pseudo birds reunions and Mike Clark, the drummer, had his version of the birds that was touring for a while. So after the set, after like 1970, 71, the birds kind of petered out um, for the most part. Um, except for a like kind of generally panned reunion album that right. came out in like I think the late seventies or early eighties. Yeah, that was their twelfth um, their twelfth album. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that was like that was kind of seen as like David Crosby came back, and I think Gene Clark may have even been back for a couple sessions. Pretty, of that album. pretty sure he was, and and uh, I believe he that was kind of in a period where he was going through a pretty rough spout of uh, substance abuse. And um, I believe, like, David Crosby was pretty... David Cro- I think, actually, David Crosby was kind of the uh, 
main bird behind that Burns Birds reunion album reunion album because Chris Hillman was kind of off during doing Flying Burrito Brothers for a lot of that as well. Um, so Chris Hillman was in and out of the studio, and I guess after I did a little bit of research into the recording of that album, and I guess while they were recording that album, Roger McGuinn was busy touring with the country lineup of the birds <laughs> as they're like as that lineup of the birds was winding down he was doing uh like reunion album with the like cl- so so-called classic lineup of the right. birds so he was out of the studio a lot doing the other birds tours where where uh chris hillman was out of the studio doing flying burrito brothers so that reunion at birds album is kind of generally seen as like a David Crosby solo album with like a few contributions from the other members of the birds. And like, I don't think it was very well thought out. And I think it was kind of a a ploy by some record executives to kind of say like, Hey, we got the birds back together. Let's sell some records. Well, they did sell some records. I mean, I I didn't actually realize what you just said, you know, at the time. But uh, what I do remember is that there was just a lot of hoopla around the bird, the original birds getting back together uh, and uh, a lot of people went out and bought that album. There was just a, a, a lot of energy around it, positive energy around yeah. it. There weren't any actual hits on the, on that album. That's right. That's kind of what I've heard. Like yeah. none of the none of the songs were like hit singles. Right. And, there like, weren't any hit singles. In yeah. fact, if you look at the uh, you know the their greatest hits mm-hmm. album, uh, the only songs that are on the greatest hits albums uh, album itself is like uh, from the first four albums. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. all that later their, stuff. Nothing. Even though they were kind of popular it. around yeah. the, you know, the the country version of the birds, mm-hmm. uh, it, those they didn't have songs that hit the same level of popularity. Definitely not as those yeah. first four albums. Definitely. I mean, those first four albums where they were really like, that's really where I feel like they locked into their sound of like, we're gonna be a band that is just like. We were taking these sophisticated lyrics and ideas behind, like, the sophisticated, uh, like, or more sophisticated, I should say, like, styles of, like, folk music and country music and giving it the backbeats of, like, pop music and, and like, I guess what at the, in the mid-60s you would call teeny bop music was just, was definitely a pretty major revolution because it kind of showed that, hey, this quote-unquote pop music can be sophisticated and can still be something that like hey this, these lyrics are poetry it's not just i want to hold your hand or i want to walk you down the street to the candy store mm-hmm. i want to it's like i want to take you for a trip on a magic carpet ride right like that's there's there's more to there's i guess a little more depth there and just like the way that they were able to kind of make that depth but still keep the uh keep the lighthearted like band band feel is definitely like a very very influential thing and like you can you can still see it in bands today like always and and uh other bands that just like take that jangly pop sound but like put really sophisticated lyrics and stories behind behind the music right yeah they're definitely one of the most influential bands from the from the mid-60s i would say Okay, well, I'm glad we picked them first. Yeah, definitely for our first little pilot episode here of the, of the podcast. Yeah, and uh, Blake and I uh, we're going to continue to do these. Uh, so watch for our next episode. Um, yeah, definitely. As that one airs too. So yeah, awesome. And uh, I'll uh, 
play some birds for our uh, for our ex. Season, ten, ten.